One of the greatest and most thrilling tricks of the writer, regardless of genre, is the ability to shift and shape and restructure time in such a way that it fictionally or narratively represents real time at times more profoundly than real time actually represents our experience of it. In today's 11th hour lecture, Susan Taylor Chihak will discuss such categories of temporal measurement as discourse time, story time, reading time, and real time, and how they might help us control the clocks that transport our stories forward. Susan Taylor Chihak is the author of five novels, including Smithereens, The Truth About Annie D, and Rampage, as well as a book of nonfiction, Don Quixote Meets the Mob, The Craft of Fiction, and The Art of Life. Her short stories have appeared in Word Riot, LA Under the Influence, and the Cheriton Review, among other places, and she currently lives in both LA and Toronto. So let's welcome her here today. Can we'll just make that happen? Yeah. Put that on here, and then don't touch it. Yeah. But you can move around with this. Oh, I you can. can just carry it around or put it in your pocket or whatever. I'm going to hook it. Yeah. That's and that way, because I'm going to have to walk back and forth to click the slides. I've created this slideshow for you partly because it's fun for me to make it. And also, it gives you something to look at. And it even I even added animation this time, so it'll be... In case this gets tiresome and the time feels like it's stretching, you can play with that and look at it. Can you all hear me okay? Back there, no? Um, how's that? Is that better? No? Come forward. You don't have to sit way back there. There's a whole lot of spaces here. I'll try to keep my voice uh, uh, loud, and uh, usually I don't have any trouble with that. One thing, though, because the chords are short, I have to walk over here to switch slides, so I'll be moving around a lot. That's okay. You can watch that up there if you need to. Time. Um, this is based on, I got to do a couple of disclaimers first. I always do this. If you've ever been to any of my talks before, I always say this. I'm a novelist. I actually not am a short story writer, too. But I'm a fiction writer, and so as a novelist particularly, I don't know anything deeply. I only know a lot of things a little bit. Enough to convince you that I know what I'm talking about. That's what a novelist does, is I just have to know enough to make you believe that what I'm telling you is true. So if any of you are neuroscientists or physicists or mathematicians in the crowd and I get something wrong, Probably that's true. But it'll fit together and make sense in a way that the overall truth will, will appear, which to me is what fiction is all about. And so I apologize for not knowing as much as I pretend I know. Um, the other thing is I taught this as a class last summer over two days, one of the weekend classes, and we workshopped and did all that. So this is a distillation of that class to just basically the lecture part that I gave during those two days. There were five people in that class. If you happen to be one of those five people, this is a refresher course for you. But I figure five isn't very many, so the odds are pretty good in my favor. Um, I started thinking about this partly because I was looking at pacing and structure in stories that I was working on, but also because I read an article in The New Yorker by David Eagleman, or about David Eagleman, who had some theory. He's a neuroscientist who was looking at time. I've also been very interested in looking at the effect of fiction on the brain, of storytelling on the brain, because I was at a place in my life where I sort of thought, why am I writing a lot of stuff that nobody wants? And if you are writing novels and stories, you may have come up against that question. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe everybody wants your stuff. I was at a point where nobody wanted it, and I, and I couldn't figure out why I would continue to bother writing novels that take me three, four years to write if they're not really ever going to be read or nobody cares about it. So I tried to find a deeper reason for why I tell stories, and that deeper reason is that fiction has the ability to change the consciousness of the reader in a way that no other art form can do. Because in fiction, you can actually, in a third-person limited point of view, you actually experience the consciousness of another human being. 
impossible to do in any other art form. And my husband is a CD writer, screenwriter, and he argues with me about this all the time. We have great long fights at night over martinis, about whether this is true or not. We've been married for a really long time, and it's that sort of tension that keeps the marriage alive, right? <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, I found purpose what I felt I was doing writing fiction as a larger purpose besides making a lot of money and buying fancy cars, that, that now I have this fiction actually does something for the world. Um, and so I now I've been looking at that and trying to bring it into my talks to give that to you as well. So that your art isn't just some selfish something you're doing, but you actually have the ability to change the world through doing that, okay? And if you don't, if you don't buy that, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Because I just want to be a superhero myself, so it's fine. So here we go. We're going to start with um, part one. Oh, I have to do it this way. Oops. Yes. Part one, what is time? Um, the ancient Greeks had two words for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos refers to the chronological or sequential time. And kairos is uh, a qualitype. Or is, uh, is signifies time in between things, a moment of indeterminate time in which something special happens. So there, there's one is it's, it's time's ticking away, and the other is the moments, the big moments that happen, chronos and kairos. In other words, I'll get used to doing this shift. Chronos is quantitative; it's how much time has passed, and kairos is qualitative what kind of time is going by. Um, we can think about this as a difference between clock time and psychological time, um, how it feels in your head, how it feels in your heart when time is going by. Um, we can think about objective time with clocks ticking and marking time and, and all the science that goes into getting all the clocks to tick the same amount of time. And then, then suddenly, didn't they have to add a couple seconds a few years ago because the, the rotation of the earth or something happened, right? Was it recently? Well, they do it every, well, because they did it like a couple of years ago, too. It seems like every now and then they have to adjust time that way. How weird is that, right? I mean, um, and, and subjective time is what Kairos is. That's our inner psychological experience of time, what time feels like to us as, as it's passing. And we can talk about the same thing with space. You know, there's like a, there's a platinum, uh, I mean, they've started measuring space through uh, electrons. I don't really understand this part so well. Um, except there was a platinum uh, meter in Paris, in the science, whatever it is there, that measures exactly what a meter is. And I had, my mother always um, was a real idealist, romanticist, and my father would criticize her and say, you've got to stop measuring everything with your platinum meter. Or your platinum yardstick, I guess he said. So you can do the same with space. There's space that's measurable, where you say it's exactly this amount or this amount, and then there's space that's, that's psychological, how far away something feels. Um, from where you happen to be standing or how close it feels. When somebody's standing a little bit too close to you, the space isn't really, there's no difference in space. It's just psychologically, it feels different. Um, so, chronos is, uh, this is chronos. And he was, in Greek mythology, the personification of time. His name in Greek means time. Obviously, we get a lot of words, chronology, um, uh, what other words? Uh, what, say? Anachronistic, synchronistic, what? Chronometer, all those come from this guy, um, from that. He was imagined as an incorporeal god, serpentine in form. That's not what we're looking at here. Um, uh, but with three heads, those of a man, a bull, and a lion. He and his consort, the serpentine Ananki, or I love this, his consort was inevitability. Right, so he's keeping track of time sequentially, and then his his friend is inevitability, which means you know time will pass and, and things will happen and who knows why or where, 
only Kronos knows when. Uh, circled in the, uh, he and his consort Ananki circled the primal world egg in their coils and split it apart to form the ordered universe of Earth, sea, and sky. Kronos is also portrayed through an old wise man, that's what we're getting here, with long gray beards such as Father Time. He might be depicted with wings as in Time Flies. We've all seen these images of, of this uh, in different uh, forms. Some of the current, here's the words, chronology, chronometer, chronic, anachronism, chronicle. Kronos is measured time, and we measure time by clocks, whether they're accurate or not. We, we keep track. Some of us set our clocks ahead or behind it so we're not late for appointments and things like that. <clears throat> the other kind is Keros, and this is Keros. Um, this is a close-up of Keros from a larger painting. Keros is a time when conditions are right for the accomplishment of a crucial action. The opportune or decisive moment, the proper moment, opportunity, season, or chance. So you seize, seize the chance, you take that time, that time only comes once. You know, if you don't, if you don't get it, it's gone. That's what Keros is. Um, and, and this turns out to be the content of story, is Keros not Kronos. You'll use Kronos in order to develop your story and to make sure it all makes sense in the real world, but it's going to be Keros of those moments that you're capturing when you're telling a story in whatever genre you're telling it. <clears throat> um, for now, let's just say that the difference between Kronos and Keros is the same as the difference between clock time and psychological time. Clocks and our inner clocks versus our, which are out there and they're ticking the same for everybody, versus our inner uh, psychological experience of time. And that takes us then to the physics of time and the biology of time and the psychology of time. So I'm going to break this up, and first I'm going to talk about the physics of time, and then go back and talk about the, the biology of time and the psychology of time, with the idea that what we're talking about when we're telling stories is the psychology of time, because we're, we're not only rendering time, we're not only rendering psychological time on the page, but we're also creating psychological time on the page in the minds of our readers who are then going to be experiencing time as we've manipulated it for them to experience it. Okay? And by looking at physics, which we'll only look at just a little bit, because it's really confusing, um, and then looking at the biology of time and how time works in our bodies, our bodies, our brains keep track of time in ways we're not even aware of, then we can see how we can then take that knowledge and use it to create time in the minds of other people through our storytelling devices. Okay? That's really basically what this whole, what we're doing here. Okay? So we start with the physics of time. And that's why, this is why I'm saying that we're not spending a lot of time on this one. <laughs> I can't possibly explain all of this here, although I've read a lot about the physics of time. Um, partly I can't explain it because it blows my mind and it will blow your mind. And also because I don't really understand it. And I don't know that anybody does. Um, it, it's one thing that happens when you're teaching is you have to really under, actually, what happens when you're teaching is you get to learn things because you have to explain it to somebody else. So people will tell you, if you really want to learn something, then teach it because then you, you have to put it into words. I don't really want to learn physics, so I don't know how to, I mean, I do, but I, there are certain limitations. <laughs> Um, um, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a pricey to get started on it. This is about as deeply as I can do it. And this is, you know those little thin books that they're introducing time, introducing Buddhism, introducing particle physics, those little things, and it's real short, sometimes they have pictures? That's what I'm taking this from. Um, because it, it, it's as far as I could get. Um, and what I want you to do while we're talking about this is in your mind be applying it to your storytelling and how you're relating events that happen in the context of the time in which they incur, occur, right? You have two things. There's time that occurs and then how you happen to be telling it. And be thinking about that when I start going through these ideas. These are 
um, uh, physics terms for the way time is uh, described as a part of our universe. Um, and the first is uh, relative time and non-relative time. Um, This is this is a, a physics description. This is what they say. Physicists talk about the nature of time and how we talk and think about time in these two ways: relative and um, uh, tensed. Oh wait, sorry. Relative time. Uh, wait, there. And a tensed theory of time. Okay. Relative time is a tense theory of time in the sense that it puts a, a oh, I missed one. It puts a, a, a relationship between past, present, and future. Um, and we, do, we use language to do that. That's why it's called tensed. We use tenses in order to, um, uh, expl or, uh, to it's not exactly explaining it. it. To create time, we use tense. To create that relationship between events, we use tense to, to say one happened before the other. And, and that's why sometimes in my classes, we'll do a whole thing about past perfect tense, and that will have me moving across the room like this. As the present tense changes, the past perfect changes as well, and the past and so it's never really static, because it's always moving forward in relation to other times. Uh, other other times in which events have occurred, um, so so that's looking at it. It happened before this and after that. Uh, it's it's ha this is how we intuit time. This is how we describe time in, in, to to ourselves. You know, you'll say the before and after. This is this is after September 11th. This was before September 11th, and and we mark watershed moments that way by before or after something happened. And that will change too, depending on how you decide to look at your life. You can say, well, that was a watershed moment when I was 20. Now it's not so much. Now now it happened in 40. Now it's before and after that part, and that shifts as well. Um, in, in your life and, of course, in your stories. In, in, uh, in this way of looking at time, the future is unreal. Uh, it's unsettled, it's ripe with possibility, or it could be filled with dread, depending on how you see it. Um, as time passes, the future is chosen, the past is set, the present is that, the, that instantaneous point where past and future meet, and then uh, uh, what's done is done. The past can't be changed. It is what it is, and there's nothing you can do to change it. Uh, but the future can be changed because it's open. The past is real. The present moves along and turns unreal future into real past. That's, that's how we intuit time. And, and I know you all have, have had that notion of time in your heads, right? I and mean, that's sort of how we think of it. Most of us think about it all, always. Um, this is also known as presentism, and that's not that's not like an artistic term. These physicists talk about this stuff. Um, in presentism, though, the past and the future are both unreal, and the only thing that's real is the present. That's the only thing that there is that's real. And but what's so so weird about it is it's ineffably not ever there because it never because it's always changing so you can't catch catch the present moment because it's never it's gone and then now it's still gone and it's never it's never there um, so there's an unreality then now to all time because you can't it's always gone it's always not there um, which can leave you feeling disoriented maybe or not. Um, this is this is also the same thing as uh, the same river twice. You can't touch the same water twice because the flow that is passed will never pass again. Um, that's that concept, and of course we've always seen this. Um, the past and the present and future are real, but the present somehow moves through it. I mean, that could be the other way of looking at it, that they're all real, 
but the present is something that's moving through all those times, but always in one direction. You know, if you, if you see the one time people do time machines and go back in time, it always never works, right? It's always, you have to really lift up that garage door of disbelief. I think of the suspension of disbelief as one of those great big heavy doors you have to hold up over your head. Um, because there's so many flaws here in the story if you go back in time and affect things and all of that. Um, so, so, it, so it is moving like a river, but it's only moving in one direction. It's not moving back and forth. <clears throat> um, this is the version that we see played out in narrative, in storytelling. It's our grammar that builds it in by, by using the past, present, and future tenses. Um, uh, and we don't even notice it. So, so, and this is all part of, I broke it up before, relative and non-relative time. This is all relative time still. And that's, that's the kind of story, uh, the kind of time we deal with when we're, we're telling stories because we're, we, we're using specific moments from one moment to the next to the next. And, and, and so it's that, and they're always in relation to something else that happened. And that's what we're building stories by creating those relationships between different events in time. Um, and so we're almost always using relative time when we're telling stories. Does that make sense? Okay. Non-relative time or tenseless time sort of looks like this, where you're the one that's moving, not the time. Um, it happens some time in the past or future or present, not with respect to some other time, just that it was the past, present, or future, not because it's related to any other kind of time. Non-relative or tenseless time is what is preferred by most philosophers and scientists. The main idea here is that there is no becoming, branching, or passage. And it's fine to represent time this way, the way we represent space. So it's not, we don't say that, you know, the, the, the uh, prairie lights over there, and so it's somehow before or after where we are here, except that we're walking to or from there, but they all, it's simultaneously there. It's still there, even though we're not on our way there. This idea is that all this time is always here. And then they get very, like, this is where you start out to take acid or something to get it into. That, that now you've got, like, not only that simultaneity, but you've got branching parallel times that are going on in all different directions. So every time you make a choice to do one thing, you also make the cho the, a lot of choices at the same time. And, and this isn't just like some weird something. They're actually finding out that this is probably true. And so when 2012 comes in December, that's when time ends. Right? That's, that's the end of the world that we're looking at in, on December 21st. That's what we're talking about, is somehow the differences between the two times all that door opens up and we see everything as it really is. And it's so so, I don't want to swear, fucking outrageous that we, that we have to all kill ourselves. <laughs> Maybe. If I were writing it as a novel. Or, no. Okay, um, so let's see, where am I? Uh, Non-relative. Um, and this is where it gets very boggling, and also where if we want to represent this, though, if this is reality, Right? And, and we're writing, we're writing um, maybe not, you're not all novelists, but, but I'm just going to use the novel as an example, which was, has historically been, its whole point has been to render reality in some way, um, to, to turn it into story, to, to take real life and turn it into art. If we need to render reality, this is what we need to learn how to render. How are we going to do that when we're, we're, we're stuck in language and we can't burst out of the, the, this happened then and then and then and then and that was then and this, all of that. <clears throat> One way we can do it is with hypertext. And I'm not going to dwell on this a lot except that the possibilities now um, hypertext begins to, oh, <laughs> sorry, I have these animations going and I better. Hypertext begins to um, uh, offer this kind of simultaneity of action. If you've read Infinite Jest, and it's not even really a hypertext novel, particularly 
Um, it could be, now the possibilities for hypertext are so much greater because of, of the media that we have to work with. Um, we can, this is one of the, the uh, possibilities that electronic books offer us, is, is a, an ability to actually play with text so it doesn't have to be linear, turn the page to get to the end, you can move all around inside the space that you have uh, for the narrative. Um, but what, if you read Infinite Jest, what happens with that, I, it's what, a thousand pages more or something? I don't know. I figured out I could read that whole book if I read 20 pages a day. And I could, you know, and I did the math and I said, okay, I'll be done. No, it was more, it was 100 pages a day. <laughs> It'll take me 10 days to read it. And, did I do that math right? No. <laughs> anyway, I worked that all out, but the problem is that they're footnotes. So. <laughs> I never got out of the foot. I'm still in the footnotes. Stuck in. But that's an example of using this, this idea of non-relative time where it's no longer linear. You don't know where you are in time. You no longer know what the relationship in time is between the events that are happening in the story that have been told. And the possibilities for this are astonishing. And if you, if you really hate the whole idea of e-books, this is a reason to begin to love it because the possibilities of what you can do with your fiction or with your work now are, are astonishing. And we haven't even begun to do that. Robert Coover is a good example. If you've read The Babysitter, um, which was published in the 70s, I think. I remember reading it in grad school. Um, that's one that messes around with time that way. He just wrote another one called Going for a Beer. That I think it was in the New Yorker, and if you can find that one, it does the same thing. Um, and there are other technologies hovering around that will make it more and more possible. For now, we're going to sti stick to traditional storytelling, and um, maybe we'll all meet again someday, and we'll have time to uh, brainstorm other possibilities. This is where I'd like to go next, and my exploration is, is what other possibilities are available. Um, but before experimenting, we're going to master the conventions that are already in place. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I keep, I'm looking at my notes here and I see all these, but, but I'm qualifying myself again and again because I encourage you to explore other possibilities once you've, you know, we've talked about this this whole time, the narrative, uh, what I'm going to tell you about today, the devices that you have, I encourage you to break those rules and take the technology that's out there and really go for using, using more than just what has already always been done. And go for non-relative time and see what happens when you start moving your thing. I had a conference with somebody today um, who writes like Nabokov did on, on index cards, so that all the scenes are on index cards, and then he can move them all around whatever way he wants to in order to build whatever structure he wants to. And that's a great Okay, but for now we're going to go, oh, well, no, I just have to say this one more thing, because what we're doing when we tell stories, we're rendering reality, and we're trying to say something about what it means to be human. So if those are our two goals in what we're doing, then, then time becomes very important, and, and the more we can render reality uh, the way it's actually experienced rather than the way it's constructed, then the more we can actually get to the truths of what it means to be human. Okay, so now going back, again we have these three. The physics of time, the biology of time, and the psychology of time. We did the physics, that was what we just did, now we're going to do the biology a little bit about it. We have biological clocks built into us. The human heart beats about 70 times per, uh, on average, per minute. My heart happens to beat exactly 60 times. 
Time. You're measuring it with your body. You're, you're, you can tell what's going on by how you're feeling in your body. Um, it turns out that it's the hypothalamus that's doing this, and it's, it's uh, regulating. Um, that's your biological clock. It's in your brain. It's intimately associated with a, with a group of nerve cells that are in the hypothalamus, which is where that little circle is in the middle there. Um, these cells are linked to the retina of the eye, and they appear to regulate cycles of hormone secretion, uh, skin temperature, cycles of rest and wakefulness. I know I was in Banff a couple of summers ago, and in June in Banff, July in Banff, it's light out till 11.30, almost midnight. And I'm sure some of you have had more experiences with this. For me, I almost had a psychotic Rose Garden. <laughs> that wasn't me, but but I couldn't get I couldn't sleep. I didn't know when to go to bed. Um, all of that stuff. Uh, short order cooks can uh, they know when to flip the eggs? They'll put the eggs on and they'll turn and put the toast in, and they know exactly the moment to turn and flip the eggs for over easy because it's been built into their. They've done it so many times. It's body has recorded how much time it is. When you're at a stoplight and it seems to be taking a little longer than you expected it to, you start getting the this thing, because you know in your body, you know how long it's supposed to take before it turns green. And that's built into your hypothalamus. That's where, where you're recording all of that and, and getting the expectation of how much time has passed. Um, there's also the circadian rhythm. I know we've all heard about this, too. Melatonin controls daily rhythm. Um, uh, so sometimes people will be, be that's jet lag, gets, messes that up when, when the clocks don't match what your body time thinks it is. Also, you have a sense of what time it is. Some people are really good at this. They can say, yeah, I know what time, you know, I don't carry a watch as I always know what time it is, whether it's looking at, even on Palm Day, I know what time it is. Sort of sense, the same as a sense of direction, you know, kind of always knowing where north is. Um, what this means is there's a feeling in the body of how much time passes in rela relation to any action. This will become important when we're telling stories, and for example, this happens, I notice this all the time a, cig uh, a character lights a cigarette and then lights another one. And you can tell in the text there wasn't enough time for her to finish that first cigarette. She's lighting another cigarette too soon. Or she Because you're feeling in your body how much time it, it takes for somebody to smoke a whole cigarette. Um, uh, we know whether there's been enough time passed for her to have smoked the first one. Um, in a minute, I'm going to talk more about that when we talk about real time, especially in the context of dialogue. Okay, so that's biological time. But as I said, we're going to do the physics of time. I don't know why I did this last year. It's to get me, keep me on track. Now what we want to do is talk about the psychology of time, because this is really where we're working when we're telling stories. Um, psychology of time is our experience of time. Um, all right, I, um, I'm in my car. traffic to see when it's got a break in the 
behind him, and he's seeing me go like this, like this, like this. He knows I'm about to come, and he's going, oh, no, oh, no, don't do it, don't do it, oh, no, oh, no, yeah. It's the same thing. But for him, it takes, like, way longer than my instantaneous things. I didn't know what was going on. For him, it takes a really long time. That's the difference psychological time. Those two different, even though the same exact amount of time happens, are my experience of that moment was way different and we all know, we've all had those kinds of experiences in our lives. Um, this, this is a, is, think of this as a warping of time perception. That's why I have that thing there. Um, and it happens in life-threatening situations. <clears throat> because we're processing more uh, data, our brains are busy, they're processing more data it feels like it takes longer because we're seeing a whole lot of different, different stuff is going on in our brains. It feels longer. Um, uh, all stops are open. Um, we remember it longer, too. We remember it as longer. This is always going to be in memory. It's not going to be in experience. It'll be in memory looking back um, because we record more of the experience. We record more details. Um, when you're bored, your attention's drawn to the passing of time, and, and you're not recording, nothing's happening, so your brain doesn't have anything to work with, so it's just, it feels like it's going on forever, like this lecture will never be over, I'll never get to lunch. Um, uh, when there's excitement, then it feels like time is flying, going by really fast, because the brain is picking up all these things. There's all this new stuff that's happening, so your brain's very busy, and it feels like it's, it's happening too fast for the brain to keep up with. It's your brain that's doing that. It's not your soul or anything else. It's actually the mechanisms in your brain that are making that happen. Um, that's why, when, as we get older, it feels like time is going faster. The reason is we're familiar with so many things, and especially if you've lived in the same place for a long time, and you've driven the same way to work every day for 20 years, it's going to feel like all time is moving faster because you're not, your brain isn't having to record a lot of different stuff all the time. Uh, or all the time. I shouldn't use that phrase, isn't having to record a whole lot of new things. So it's a good reason to travel. <laughs> you know, and get out of where you are, because you'll slow yourself down. You'll slow time down for yourself. You won't feel like, like the end is near. Um, the more familiar the world becomes, the less information your brain writes down, and the more quickly time seems to pass. In the brain, in your brain, time is metasensory. That is, there are, there are all these different parts of your brain uh, record visual, tactile, auditory, and multisensory, um, physical sensory things. But on top of all of that, in no separate specific place in your brain, uh, time is sitting on top of it. It's sitting on top of all of it. So, so you're recording it through all your senses all the time. That's why if all your senses are engaged, time seems to uh, stretch out. Um, and you notice more you're completely aware of everything with all your senses at once. So an unfamiliar situation or a life-threatening situation will kick that into gear. Um, this, is, this is, you may have seen this, and that's because I skipped one. Um, disconcerted. Oh no. <laughs> um, it's gone. I don't know why. It'll probably show up in some other weird place. Um, David Eagleman is where I'm getting some of this information. Um, it, his slide should be between those last, before this one. Was it there? Was it? Well, there should have been another one that had him on there. Um, okay, David Eagleman, uh, there was an article in the New Yorker um, 
called the Possibilian. Uh, um, I actually I have this here, and I'm going to just read you this whole thing. He fell through. Um, he was with some friends as a little kid, and they were they were going in a, in a house under construction that they shouldn't have been in, and they were up on that second story um, where the floors weren't solid yet, and he stepped off the rafter into the onto one of the boards that didn't support his weight and fell. And he remembers this. This is what caused him to become a neuroscientist later in his life. Um, this is what he says. Uh, and, 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 and his research of, as a neuroscientist was that in life-threatening situations, time seems to slow down. He remembers the feeling clearly, he says. His body stumbles forward as the tar paper tears free at his feet. His hands stretch out toward the ledge, but it's out of reach. <clears throat> the brick floor floats upward. Some shiny nails are scattered across it. As his body rotates weightlessly above the ground, it's a moment of absolute calm and eerie mental acuity. But the thing he remembers best is the thought that struck him in midair. This must be how Alice felt as she was tumbling down the rabbit hole. That, that he can have all of those sensory perceptions and have a thought in midair, when you know this only happened in a, in a fraction of a second, is what, what drove him to become a neuroscientist to try to figure out what happens in the brain um, uh, uh, when time stops like that. And it's because of the amygdala. And the amygdala is, uh, as it says here, um, it's, it's part of the limbic system, and it, it's what controls the emotions and, and that part of what, what's happening in your um, uh, mind and body. In humans and other animals, this subcortical brain structure is linked to both fear responses and pleasure. So what's happening is that amygdala is when something threatens your life, this area kicks into overdrive, recording every last detail of the experience. The more detailed the memory, the longer the moment seems to last. And this is why a story that you're writing may be faster at the, at the uh, may seem faster at the end than at the beginning, because you're putting in all those, all that that stuff, and then you don't have to fill it in anymore, and then. Uh, because there's less to be set up. Um, right, no, I have to, I have to, it'll be fine. Um, and we'll talk about this more in a minute when we get to pasting. You might be asking right now, what does all this have to do with storytelling? And that takes us to part two. Past, present, and future, time, text, and tense. First, we have time, uh, the linearity of, and this is what I was sort of alluding to earlier when I started talking about uh, hypertext. When we tell stories, we're really reliant on a, a linearity. The story begins, you have a story node. Story, this is from somebody's outline of what a plot is, the story nodes. Um, we're, we're, we're caught in a turning the pages thing where, where you're moving linearly from the beginning of a book to, or the beginning of a story to the end of a story. A sentence begins, goes through, and ends. We read it one word at a time. Um, all of that linearity is built into the stories that we tell um, just because we don't really know what else to do. Um, a narrative is composed of scenes. One follows the others. Often the seamlessness of this is much admired. <laughs> and we try to find transitions between scenes, but what we're really doing is one uh, scene after another. A story can arrange events in any order it finds useful, but it does have to move between then and now and later. And it's read linearly as well, um, unless it's not. We have tense. This is what else we're working with. Um, we use tense to differentiate between then and now and later of the story. Um, it, it gets interesting here when you start to really look at it closely because um, tense is not always what you think it is. You have past, present, and future, past perfect, future perfect, um, all of these different, uh, in the English language you have all these different 
kinds of tenses that you can use, um, all of which suggests a moving present tense, because the present's going to shift depending on where you put that, and then all the other ones will fall into place around whatever you've decided is your present. Um, I said this yesterday and got myself really uh, distracted from what I was trying to say, but that's why Bill Clinton can say it depends on what your definition of is, and still actually makes sense. Now, see, I'll lose myself again because I don't know why I went there. Um, and finally, text. Text has the same root is the same root word as textile. So the text is like a tapestry that we're weaving when we're telling a story, except it's not visual. It just is marks on the page that are read in sequence. We can't really get past this. We can't take the story in a in, in a glance. Um, we have to take it in in pieces, whether those pieces are chronological or not. And it will matter. It will be putting the it will be the putting together of those pieces that creates the story, making meaning not just out of the events that happens, but out of the sequence of events that might happen willy-nilly with no real relation between them except what we give them. That is storytelling. Um, and we do it all the time. Our experience is stuff just happens to us. That's actually the truth. Stuff just happens, one thing after another, right? And only when we start to arrange it into a story does it, does it begin to have any meaning? That's how we give it meaning by arranging and, and creating relationships between events. So if you're telling a story about yourself that you've been telling for a long time, you can change that story anytime you want to. If you decided that you were you know, an abused child and a victim and everything that happened to you after that is because of what your father did when you were four, you're welcome to change that story anytime you want to because you just make that up. Everything that happened to you just that's a little self-help you get along the way. Okay. Um, now, this is where we get to pacing. Which I know it's what you've all been waiting for. We have three kinds of time. This is from Umberto Eco's Six Walks in the Fictional Wood. We have three times of, kinds of time. We have story time. That's how much time passes in the course of the story. We have discourse time. That's how long it takes to tell the events of the story. And we have reading time. How long it takes to read the story. I'm not going to talk about reading time. I'm just putting it up there. This brings us to stretching and condensing. When discourse time is longer than story time, that's called stretching. So, uh, The example that Aiko gives is in the beginning of Swan's Way, it takes Marcel uh, 30 pages to fall asleep in 15 minutes. That's stretching. And then some. Um, condensing is when discourse time is shorter than story time. So. Uh, and then he moved to New York and he found an apartment on the Upper West Side and he enrolled in school and a year later he was uh, working for an agency. That's condensing. And we do it all the time, right? Oh, here's David Dickelman again. <laughs> this is where I meant to do it. I knew he was here somewhere. Um, so all that, this, this is the falling through the, the, the uh, floor of the, of the building. What happens is you go back to this idea of time being a rubbery thing. So now you're telling stories and you're stretching and condensing just for this reason, in order to give em em emphasis to something when something really, when something happens that, that has a lot of stuff going on in it, it's going to take you longer to tell it because you're going to put in all those sensual details. And that's going to actually mimic the way it's experienced. So when you're when, when he falls to the roof and you're seeing how long ever it took me to read that little paragraph about it, that that's 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 way longer than it actually happened. But in order for me to 
and you can manipulate, you warp time that way to make, make your, your storytelling seem realistic and feel realistic. Because remember I said we're feeling it in our bodies. We know how long it takes to smoke a cigarette. So if it takes them much longer to finish that cigarette, we'll feel it. You, you, can, you can have that be a mistake that you made, or you can do it deliberately so that it just seems like, oh my God, they're never going to get, get out of this car, they're in the car forever because, because they haven't gotten to their destination or whatever is working for you in your stories. The third time is real time, where discourse time equals story time. This is what happens in dialogue. When two people talk to each other, it's real time. Um, uh, most dialogue is in real time. Sometimes it won't be, but most of the time what we're writing is real time in dialogue. That's why you, you put in the beats, so, so uh, you have to have the pauses, so, so everybody's not stepping on each other's lines. It's not like you know a banter going back and forth, but people are actually responding to what, what each other said. So you have to think about it a little bit. And in order for that to happen, you add beat. So uh, uh, she says something to him, and he looks away, he gets up and makes a cup of coffee, and then, or pours a cup of coffee, and then comes back and says something to her. And he recorded it all in real time. Because the discourse time is taking exactly the same time as the story time. Now, people will say, I read books that have a lot of dialogue in it because they go a lot faster. It's, your reading goes faster, but actually time stops when people start talking to each other because you've been doing this stretching and condensing all along, and now all of a sudden you're in real time, and it's dead air. Now, that can be, that may be your intention. You know, you maybe want to stop time and let it be in real time, and then we're, we're going along in and it's taking me as long to read this as it is to, to think about it. Everything is just there. But you maybe don't want to do it at the height of, of when, when, when you want a lot of stuff to happen. You want the pages to be turned. Because it feels like it goes fast when you're reading it just because there's a lot of white space on page. I don't have any words to read. But actually, what's happening in the action is pretty much nothing. Two people are talking to each other. And they can't even do much physically because they have, to, they have to look. I mean, they can walk side by side maybe and talk to each other. And they, can, but they can't do any real action. They have to turn away if they're going to do any action with each other. Um, so you want to think about that, too, and, and use it, not avoid it, but use when, when um, you get into real time. Linear time. Um, This is moving away from, from the pacing now into looking at the kind of time you're dealing with in a story. And this takes you to outlines. This is actually, I think this is um, Harry Potter. This is her outline of what happens in the, um, one of the books. Uh, and, and you, as a writer who's telling stories, you create a chronology of what happened when and when and when, right? Before, you know, 1938 and 1952, or however, last week and next week, or however you're doing it, you create that chronology, and then you pick the moments, that's the chronos, you pick the Keros moments that are going to be the ones that are going to actually be your story, and you arrange them in such a way that there's a connection between them. It doesn't have to be a time connection, though. It doesn't have to be that this, I'm telling it this way because this happened first chronologically. I'm telling it this way because there's, a, there's another relationship the two events that has to do with who was involved in it or what the consequence of one thing was or, 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 or what the cause of something was. Um, but you still need to make these outlines so you can see when you start moving around in time where to put, how you're taking it out of. I mean, I read a lot of stories where somebody says, you know, her parents died when they were, when she was five. Um, but this linear time then takes us to backstory. And backstory is all the stuff that's underneath the surface.
surface of whatever the moment, the event of the moment is. Um, what happened before the story that we're telling? Scenes that may or may not be included in the story itself. They might just be there for you, the author. You know all this backstory. We don't necessarily have to see it on the page. David Morell, who, who taught here uh, back when I was in school, he wasn't allowed into the writer's workshop because he actually made most of it won't. Um, and the way it shows up is with flashbacks, where the past gives meaning to the present, and the present gives meaning to the past. And that's just creating relationships between events that have happened in a character's life so that they, they begin to inform each other in some way. Um, uh, and then there are also, these are all not just devices that there's switchbacks. Switchbacks is where a flashback reframes the story and then also reframes itself. I like this little animation. So what happens with this is, is um, you zigzag between time frames. And every time you make the zigzag back or forward, it changes the context again. So now, now having seen a scene in the past, that has a certain context. Now, Putting it into the context of something that happens 20 years later changes it. Oh, but then adding something that happened five years before it changes it again. So, so that one event that you've been telling all along gets changed by adding the time events that happened before or after it. And then when you move forward to the one that is affecting the scene before, which was affected by the one that was back here, that's now affecting here and they're all changing because of the context that's changed as soon as you've um, um, added more information from different time periods. And again, time is just happening willy-nilly. There isn't really any connection except what you're making. And, it, and it's in the making of those connections that your storytelling is coming about. That's where the story comes from. That's how, how it takes on meaning, not just for your characters or for you, but also for your And then, although the scenes have to stand alone, in their relationship with every, everything else that's happened in the story, that's what actually makes your story deep and bigger than just this happened and this happened and this happened, the end. Time. Um, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm going to take two extra minutes. Um, Alice Monroe does this. another event that happened at a different time Finally, we have circular time where it comes back, you come back around from where you, where you started and you go back um, again. This, and I'm taking this example from uh, 100 Years of Solitude, many years later as he faced the fight. This is the first line in the book, I'm sure a lot, most of you have read it. Uh, many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. This sentence has the past, present, future, the whole story in it, just in that sentence, and it's the first sentence, and, and it, it, that's, the, that's circular time, using circular time, coming back on yourself. I can say more about it, but I'm not going to. Um, what happens with...
25 years ago isn't important anymore. What seems like it's meaningless today turns out to be of great import when put in the context of, what, of the future. So there is a, a creation of what reality really feels like when you start using circular time and these switchbacks back and forth. Um, And now we've run out of time.